Hey, Boston Center, Team U. We have a problem here. We have a hijacked aircraft headed towards New York, and we need you guys to, we need someone to scramble some F-16s or something up there to help us out. This, is this real world or exercise? No, this is not an exercise manifest. We couldn't know. We couldn't imagine. Only madmen could contain the thought, execute the act, fly the planes. The sane world will always be vulnerable to madmen because we cannot go where they go to conceive of such things. We couldn't see it coming. We could not be here before it happened. We could not stop it. But we are here now. Yes, those are the words of Michael J. Straczynski from Amazing Spider-Man 36, the black cover issue published in December of 2001, shortly after the events of September 11th. And Straczynski was right. The comics industry was there, out in front of the most popular media arts and industries. Today, on the Comic Book Historians podcast, we're going to look back at that moment, how the comic industry responded immediately after the attacks and how certain creators addressed it in the years that followed we'll be talking about the tribute books the impact on mainstream titles and special projects like art spiegelman's in the shadow of no towers and frank miller's holy terror finally we'll talk about the longer range impact and its relationship with superheroes in film i'm bill field the host of the comic book historians podcast And I'm joined for this very special episode by my partners, Alex Grand. Alex. Hi, everybody. And Jim Thompson. Hi, guys. Now, typically, this is the part of the show where Jim, Alex, and I catch up with each other about what we've been doing since our last podcast. But instead, since this is a very poignant and personal podcast this time, I want to ask where each of you were around the time and what was going through your minds on 9-11? Alex? Well, I was in grad school at the time. It was a science class, and I remember I was asking my professor some questions after the lecture, and then someone in the back row yelled, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, there is a plane crashed into the World Trade Center, national emergency, etc. I was almost in disbelief for I thought maybe this person is exaggerating. So I just kept asking my questions to the professor. The professor looked a little confused by what was going on in the crowd, and he was kind enough to answer the questions. I walked outside of the class, and I see people looking at the TV and crying, and I see the footage on the TV. And I was in Philadelphia at the time, so it wasn't that far away, and I was just shocked. And immediately it was just more a sense of conspiracy theories and dread, a lot of dread, thinking, okay, someone's making their move and things are about to change. That's what was going on through my mind at that time. Wow. And Jim, how about you? I think I'm the only one that was on the West Coast, so there was a time difference for me. And at like so five in the morning or so, one of my students who happened to be in New York filming it at that time was there and he called and, and said, wake up, turn on the television. And so we watched it from that moment the rest of the day. But the thing that disturbed us, my wife and I, were that we had been on that flight that left Boston 
just like a week earlier. So there was this like little bit of a feeling like, wow, that could have been, we could have been there. We could have been, you know, there if we'd just done it a week later. The other thing that I, I was telling you guys in talking about this is how I felt then as compared to now is interesting to me because I think I would have an even stronger reaction because in reading the comics that we're going to be talking about, I had a, a strong reaction as a father now that I wasn't before. It seems like life has a different value to me 10 years or however many years later than it did even at that time. And I'm an old guy to begin with. So that was where I was. And me, I was on my way to work when I heard about the second crash. Had just gotten to work and found out that a friend of mine had survived the Pentagon plane landing, crashing, bombing, however you want to say it. So it hit me very strangely. It was very numb for me. I didn't really know what to think. I still don't know what to think. I have to agree with you, Jim. Going back and researching and reading what we have for this podcast, I have a different I have a different feeling entirely about how I feel about the impact of 9-11 on comics, and I'm grateful that we have this podcast to talk about it. And with that said, the only other thing I'd add is that for all of us saying that and how we might feel, I think one of the reasons for doing this is that the creators and the comics industry itself has an immediate connection because they were all, most of them were in New York and comics history is New York, as Spiegelman made clear, going back to the earliest days of uh, yellow journalism and Pulitzer and such. So comic history and New York are inextricably tied. And I think that's why it's an important topic in relation to comics. Well, let me ask a related question to start off our first topic. Did you read that Spider-Man issue when it came out? What did you think of it at the time, Jim? The one you were quoting from. Well, let me just start by saying that it was penciled by John Romita Jr. We should give him credit, too. And it really captured, I thought, two things. The helplessness and confusion of the moment, especially as exemplified by Peter Parker throughout that issue. And the gratitude we all felt for the firemen, the police, and other rescue workers, which was going to be probably the predominant topic the first month or so after 9-11, that that's what people focused on were the heroes of the first responders and those especially that lost their lives doing that. That's right. And something that was notable in the way the pictures were drawn by Ramita Jr. and maybe it was plotted by Straczynski is it didn't show anything about heroes fighting villains or any battles. It did show heroes like Captain America and Thor more in the rubble alongside the firefighters and first responders that were there, delineating that that was the heroic action of the time. And it's interesting because we never really see superheroes cleaning up the mess after the violence has happened. And this issue made it very clear that the heroes of the time were those first responders. And I thought that was effectively done. Captain America, too, in that issue stood out for me because he looked... Like, this should never have happened again. He he looked like he had some trauma involved in it that relates to World War II and, and the bombings and London and, and so forth. That's how I, I read it, that that he was having a very different experience maybe than some of the than uh, Spider-Man would have been having. Right. The Spider-Man would have had probably more of a naive reaction to it. And Cat America is 
would have been a bit more seasoned just because of him living through Pearl Harbor and all that. And I think that's probably the emotional resonance that the writer artist team were trying to bring to that. What do you think about that, Bill? I think that's a that's a good way to put it. You and I were talking earlier today about the fact that it's strange that World War II was almost like a party. Those were my words, but compared to 9-11 and afterwards, because people were excited to get into the war and get it going and to a certain extent. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not trying to say people were happy to be in World War II. But compared to 9-11, the somberness, the fact that it hit New York and not an outlying area like Hawaii, it made a big difference. I mean, I see Jim looking like, what the heck are you talking about? Like you're about? insane? Yes, I but, am, but that's but, okay. I mean, I, I don't agree with anything you're saying there, but but keep saying it. But no, that's basically... that's basically Party! World War II, all right! There was definitely energy behind people getting involved in the war, even in the comics, like in Terry and the Pirates. It was very exciting to be in the war. Gung-ho, fun, you know, bye bond. I think that maybe cheapens Pearl Harbor. The use of the word party just kind of got me on the... uh Redirecting back to the comic. So I thought those were effective tools that... Straczynski and Romita Jr. used to elaborate on the drama, the anxiety, the shock, and the helpfulness of the first responders. I did feel that they, at some point in that last couple of panels, somewhat jumped the shark a little when they show Magneto and Doctor Doom and Kingpin somberly looking at the wreckage as if Kingpin truly cared, which I think, and we talked about this before, he'd probably try to think about how to run guns through the mess or have some opportunity through it. Dr. Doom, that panel of his tears really threw me off because he's performed similar or worse terrorist acts on America several times in various Fantastic Four stories. So I felt like at some point that got a little too much for me where it kind of lost me right at the very end. Yeah, instantly took me out of the the whole thing. The, the tear, even the text on those got a little bit too soapy, but Dr. Doom crying over anything other than his mother doesn't work for me. Right, I mean, exactly. and, and certainly not over New York. He's not. It's not like he's a New Yorker. Right. It you didn't make I... any sense. Why are those three standing there next to each other anyway? Like the, everything about <laughs> it just bothered well, me. Well, maybe they were taking a break from their acts of vengeance meeting from 1990s. You know, I don't know what that was. Stay with us. We'll be right back. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America Podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mew. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities, under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. See, and Magneto I... is a terrorist. And, exactly. and uh, unless, you know, unless a bunch of mutants got killed at this stage, I mean, yeah. who he is. Right. It didn't make sense. He killed that Russian submarine, 150 people dead, kind of uh, early 80s X-Men. So why would he care about this? It, it, it just didn't make sense to me. 
Well, I kept thinking that these guys would be standing there going, why didn't we think of this? What a simple, perfect plan. You know, (laughs) not shedding a tear going, oh, my God, the Twin Towers. Because it's not in their characters. It was the Doctor Doom tears that just completely blew that. Yeah, I I just, I wasn't able to to make that jump. I thought it cheapened the whole thing because it made it hokey. And this was, for many, many, many people... This was the first comic book exposure to 9-11. The actual first comic book response to 9-11, Jim? No. Alex? No. Almost. Marvel was definitely the quickest among the major companies, but they got the first benefit book out before the Spider-Man issue. That was a poster book, right? Yeah, it was called Heroes. It was 64 separate full-page illustrations. Most of them didn't have words. There was some dialogue here and there. That was how they got it out by October 16th, five weeks after the attacks, because there just wasn't that much to really write in it. It was a lot of illustration, though. And that was amazing. It's uh, Heroes, the World's Greatest Superhero Creators Honor the World's Greatest Heroes. And you have artists like George Perez, Joe Kubert, Frank Miller, who did a really nice broken... Captain America, which I thought was one of the most intriguing pages in it. Then John Romita Sr., who did a really nice one of a wife looking at the frame of her husband who looked like he was a pilot, clearly mourning the loss of the pilots of 9-11. The brothers Hildebrandt. Neil Adams did a beautiful double-page spread. Steve Rude, Alex Ross. You had words by Stan Lee and Alan Moore, Kurt Busiek, Jim Shooter, Neil Gaiman. There were a couple of Hulk pages, like one by Keown, which was pretty nice. But it was mostly filled with firemen, police, other first responders. So like Steve Root is known for these Kirby-like paintings of superheroes, and it was actually just more firemen within the hustle and bustle of what was going on. So it was definitely a less glamorous approach, but definitely honoring the first responders and people who lost their lives in 9-11. And the proceeds went to the Twin Towers Fund, which provided financial aid to the families of firefighters, police officers, and other uniformed personnel who died during the attack. The book cost $3.50. It sold 100 thousand copies in the first two days and 225,000 by its third printing. So the net profits for this and the Spider-Man totaled over a million dollars. Something that I noticed about the format of the magazine and the talent, Marvel already was kind of geared to do magazines like this. You know, they had those 90s swimsuit issues and it almost feels like one of those, but much more somber and obviously honoring what happened at the time. And the paper quality feels like those 90s magazines. So they had everything kind of set up, and then they just had the love of the artists and writers. There was another book they did, Moment of Silence, and that was in 2002, February. And that one had four stories. First one was Moment of Truth about Anthony Savas, a building inspector who was lost under the collapsing buildings. And this was depicted by Bill Hemis and Mark Bagley. Bill Hemis wrote the story. And You know, he wrote that funny Marvel comic that was kind of silly, but this really showed me that he did have an ability to write something serious and nice. And then there was also Moment of Silence by Brian Michael Bendis and Scott Morse of a Cleveland firefighter admiring the New York Fire Department and how they handle 9-11. And in it, there was a scene of an older firefighter yelling, quiet, while everyone's working and that evidently ruffled some feathers because this feeling of suppressing your emotion or the reader should suppress their emotion over the mess but i took it as just firefighters were too busy doing their jobs rather than talk and that in times of a crisis actions kind of speak louder than words and that's how i took it I, i took it in a more positive light i think but you know everyone can take it in a different way i'm not sure if it was suppressing emotion or if it was suppressing 
conversation like that we could have we could look at different aspects of this and talk about the causes and things and instead there was a tendency at the first moment to we all had to be united and be on the same page when we get to the alan moore story i think it gets that's a good response to that but we'll we'll do that then there's a lot of flags too in this there's firemen but boy every page had a flag in the back is very patriotic as everything because the city was think about i don't know if you guys had a plastic flag sticking out of your car but most people in la we have a lot of cars here and and mm-hmm. most of them had flags on them yeah absolutely i mean my parents were middle easterners and so they definitely had a flag going because they don't want anyone to think hey you know we're not on board we're we're with you guys you know and i had a cousin who fought in iraq for the united states and he's middle eastern and he served so yeah we have a patriotic family but at that time yeah my middle eastern parents definitely felt like they needed to show that off just to kind of push away any doubters about where their loyalty lied that's amazing and sad in a big way now, the third story in this moment of silence was Sick Day by Joe Casada and Igor Cordy about a family who loses their father, the New York firefighter, and he died in the collapsing buildings. And it really shows how that devastated the family. It was really zooming in on just one family, and you can almost apply those emotions to other families that went through the same thing. The fourth one is probably the one that I thought wasn't as meaningful to me reading it was called Periphery by Kevin Smith and John Romita Jr. about a father who was near the attack and his family dreaded the idea of him dying in the crash after a morning full of arguments and he arrives home to hug his wife and kid and they're all just happy that they were alive and I'm sure that was an aspect of 9-11 of relief okay cool my dad's okay but I almost feel like it was a lesser aspect they probably could have done something different with that fourth story but that being said it's nice reading that in the context of the heroes book and the spider-man book when you look at all three together it is nice to get a context of what the artists especially the marvel artists were really feeling at the time the marvel writers and all that um stanley had an interesting little dialogue in the heroes book about awakening the sleeping giant and how innocence is lost and i thought that was fine it was a few sentences you know he uses the word like villainy which is almost a silver age corny word that kind of lost me a little, but I did get where he was going to with that. When I was researching this topic, I, I came across a December 2011 quote by Will Eisner that was in a New York Times piece on the 9-11 tribute comics that we're talking about. And what Eisner said was, I've been waiting for the graphic novel or the use of comics for serious material to be accepted. And here for the first time, this medium has dealt with a major event. He added... Imagery has tremendous power, far greater power than words alone. It doesn't have the reach that words have. It cannot evoke the depths that a series of words can, but it can certainly engage you in a highly emotional way. And I thought that was especially applicable to the Marvel books because they tried to get them out on the stands immediately within five weeks for the Heroes book. And with that, I thought it was all visual 99% visual and really didn't get complex in terms of thoughts as as it said in that one that you were talking about Alex it was like quiet we just want to look at it and that was the power of the medium I think and that's what Eisner was talking about although to say that it's never been used for serious material before seems an odd thing for for somebody with the experience that Eisner had 
especially someone who worked during World War II, to actually say. Joe Quesada said at the time that it would have been callous and irresponsible for Marvel Comics not to respond to the attacks, given that New York was a home to its heroes and to Marvel. It was personal for them. Now, speaking of Joe Quesada, what was going on with Marvel at this point in time anyway? Weren't they just coming off a bankruptcy? Yes, and a lot of this starts in the backgrounds of who owned Marvel. So Marvel was obviously timely, started by Martin Goodman, and sold to Perfect Film and Cadence in 1968. They had Marvel for a while. In 1986, they sold to New World Entertainment. They fired Jim Shooter. They owned it for three years and sold it for profit to Revlon in 1989. So this is where we start getting to the bankruptcy world because Perlman maximized variant covers, collector's markets, junk bonds, loans, and bought a lot of entertainment gear, baseball card companies, and through a meteoric rise and fall, had to file for bankruptcy in 1996. So in 1996, just to kind of get by, Marvel also temporarily licensed its heroes to the image guys, and then a year later got the characters back. Around that time in 1997, Toy Biz under Ike Perlmutter bought Marvel with co-owner Avi Arad, and placed their vice president, Bill Hemis, as publisher. Bob Harris was editor-in-chief, who was good at schmoozing with executives, and still actually is. Hemis hired Joe Quesada, who brought the mature Marvel Knights line of higher-quality books out in 1998. Around this time, Marvel licensed out its properties like Men in Black and Blade into movies, which worked out well. A lot of people don't know that Marvel actually owned the Men in Black comics, not because they made it originally, but because they bought the comic company that made it. But those did well. That was some money that Marvel was able to make. They produced some toys, which also sold, and this diversification with Marvel Knights and licensing out those two movies started to get the company out of bankruptcy. And this is where it's interesting, because then X-Men comes out, and that was a success in 2000. That was a license to Fox. Spider-Man was being made by Sony in 2001 when 9-11 happened. And as 9-11 happened, you have this nidus of the superhero movie business, Marvel getting back onto its feet, solidifying its new identity in the new millennium with somewhat more adult, hardcore themes. Hemis and Casada reacted to Marvel in these three issues, the Spider-Man number 36, Heroes, and this Moments of Silence. So in the face of this, Marvel kind of hardened up their identity as they were responding to 9-11, and the Marvel Knights' success pushed it further with the Max series, as well as the Ultimate comics. So you have the Ultimate line, which is like, let's make this new and improved and modern, but also a little more hardcore. You have the Max series, which is really adult hardcore violence. You have the Marvel Knight series, which is kind of mainstream, but a little off continuity, more adult. So they're escaping from the mainstream Marvel, going more adult, more cynical, almost more cynical. And in the midst of this adult drive, X-Force was the first comic to permanently pull away from the comics code and marvel establishes their own rating system mutants are reality tv stars with death happening all the time and nobody cares and it's all about the rating so that's what that was about nick fury i know this is bill's favorite comic chokes a guy with his intestines and stan lee even said that wasn't his type of comic brian michael bendis writes alias jessica jones which makes for an alcoholic one night stand loving damaged supergirl who then tries to find herself amidst kind of a rough upbringing rawhide kid 
I know Jim knows the Rawhide Kid. He came out as openly gay in a comic. And Steve Gerber comes back with Howard the Duck in 2001, and it was way more openly sexual and crude than its earlier comics. So at the same time, we have superheroes showing they're a huge blockbuster, people craving more escape, and also just adults reading more comics and getting more adult-themed Marvel. I want to come back to this topic, Alex, when we get to the movies in their third section. You covered it to some degree, but I want to talk a little bit more about it. But I also want to mention two non-Marvel 9-11 tribute books, which followed in January of 2002. There was 9-11 Emergency Relief, which was another fundraiser, this time for American Red Cross, published by Jeff Mason's Alternative Comics. It was 208 pages with 60 vignettes of various lengths and 80 different contributors, mainly small press creators like Jessica Abel, Donna Barr, Will Eisner did some, Peter Cooper, Tony Millionaire, Harvey Picard, Ted Rawl, Alex Robinson, Jeff Smith, Mark Wheatley, a lot of the people that you associate with, with smaller press, more original, less mainstream work. Most of the stories were personal accounts of the day, like Evan Forsh's escape from the 89th floor of the North Tower. The book received positive reviews from both the New York Times and Time magazine. There were no superheroes, no color, except for the one use of red by Will Eisner. And again, this came out shortly after the Marvel books came out and was inspired, I think, partly by their efforts. And it makes sense for Eisner to have that cinematic schindler's list type of approach like that with color that that's yeah, very nice it was very effective in the same month 9-11 artists respond volume one was released by chaos comics dark horse image and other publishers this was a collaboration with dc comics that packaged and released the second volume volume one was 192 pages and contained stories and illustrations including a sort of weird stark poem by frank miller and surprise, an artistic interpretation of Two Towers by Dave McKean, Paul Chadwick on the heroism of the passengers of Flight 93. All of the stories that involved 93 that I saw were especially moving, I thought, and kind of suspenseful because of the action involved. Will Eisner's essay about the souls of the buildings and artwork by people like Alex Maleev, Peter Cooper, and others. Volume finished off with its longest contribution at six pages by Alan Moore and Melinda Gebby or Jebby. Eric Drucker of The New Yorker created the cover. I do want to talk about the Moore story just for a minute. This was six pages of Moore's favorite nine-panel grids. And he says, again, this is in comparison to the Marvel books, which really didn't have a lot of depth to it. And in this one, he talks about how dazed and confused as we are in the rubble of our towers, there's an opportunity to learn something here, perhaps just one opportunity. And yet we are all supposedly with the crusaders or the terrorists, or alternatively with a great jihad or with Islam's enemies. With all due respect... With all sympathy, with all love, some of us cannot make that choice. No, we're with you, whoever you are. Squeeze once if you understand. This is information. And the name of the story is information. And it's just talking about the complexity of modern structures, whether it's the towers themselves or it's the human and political and social relations. And I, I think it had a depth to it. I actually think it's one of Moore's most refined pieces of writing. And that's how it ended. That was the very last story in the book. Now, Bill, you just reread the second volume, 
the one that was published by DC at the time, right? Yes, 9-11, the world's finest comic book writers and artists tell stories to remember, came out in February of 2002 at the same time as Marvel's A Moment of Silence. It was 224 pages and included work by Neil Gaiman, Brian K. Vaughn, Kurt Busiek, Stan Lee, Jeff Johns, Chris Pachalo, Michael Zuli, Jim Lee, and others. Alex Ross painted the cover with Superman and Crypto looking up at the emergency personnel who dealt with the crisis. And all proceeds from this and the first volume went to the World Trade Center Relief Fund, Survivors Fund, September 11th Fund, and the Twin Towers Fund. On that note, I'd like to mention what I thought was striking about this volume as opposed to the other. And that would be that this one came in three sections, which I thought was pretty novel. It was broken up into nightmares, heroes, and recollections. Now, the nightmares was actually something that I would compare to Twilight Zone episode and the strangeness and how, for one of those rare moments, Superman broke the fourth wall. And you have Superman going through outer space and doing his typical superheroic things and talking about how he can breathe in outer space, how he can't be affected by this or that. But at the same time, he's saying, but I can't do anything to help you. And he's saying this as a kid is actually reading the comic book that he's in. And the funny thing is, is what he's trying to get at is that all the great things he can do within his DC universe, he can't do anything to help our world through 9-11. And the art, I thought was very dynamic with its space scenes and downright like Twilight Zoneish themes. But the best part is the end of the story where you basically see Superman, in my eyes, struggling to get out of the comic page to help us, and he can't. And he feels completely defeated. And that was poignant to me. It made me uh, realize how helpless people felt after 9-11. And, and it actually... Uh, made me think about it in deeper ways than I'd, I'd thought about it in quite some time. That's really nice. That sounds a lot more interesting and metaphorical and artistic than anything I read in the Marvel books. Oh, and to me, it gets a lot better, and I think Jim might actually agree with me on this. But in the Heroes portion, you have something that I really thought it was more like a, an old Walt Kelly piece, but it was written by Rick Veitch and drawn by the mad artist himself, Sergio Aragonis, and it was absolutely fantastic. It was called I Never Thought of Myself as a Hero, and it's basically this ant that endures things like a 9-11, but in his ant world, and it's drawn not in the normal sarcastic, ironic way that Aragonis typically draws, but a more soft and delicate way, and something more like You'd see Archie the Cockroach doing or something of that nature in literature. You realize that what he's talking about being a hero is, is that he just has to get up and get out after his own 9-11 experience in the anthill. And he works in the Antpire State Building. And so it, they make it a lot like our world, but at the same time, they make it almost like a fable kind of world. And the bottom line is, is that He's saying he doesn't feel like he should really be a hero, but he realizes he's a hero just getting up and confronting these things every day after the 
debacle that was 9-11. Right. And that is nice because there is an issue of denial versus confronting that it happened. And that sounds like that addresses it really nicely. And then there's a third section, Recollections, which this was actually my favorite story in the entire book. And it was Dust by Keith Giffen and Bill Ray, William Ray to some people. And you witnessed the FDNY clearing bodies out in uh, human debris at ground zero with a man's letterhead charred. And I believe he's a lawyer, actually, Jim. You may correct me on that. But uh, it's blowing in the breeze of the human dust. And then you see dust settling everywhere. And it even makes a young girl sneeze as she's putting up a poster for missing dad. And it's the same name of the guy on the letterhead as it is on the I'm looking for my dad poster. And it just made me realize the entire time you're following a trail of dust, which are the remains of this man. And it really choked me up and made me um, really appreciate this volume in a whole new way. Uh, Bill, I just wanted to add that I also like the other three sections that you neglected because it's six parts, not three. Dreams, Unity, which was really interesting in terms of bringing the rest of the world into this, and Reflections. It's a six part, not a three part. Oh, well, thank you for that, Jim. So that wraps up the tribute books, but they were followed by other mainstream and alternative books. Rather than list all of those, however, we opted to do a bit of a book club segment where we all read two of the most famous or infamous post-9-11 books, Art Spiegelman's In the Shadow of No Towers and Frank Miller's Holy Terror. Alex, you want to give a brief recap of Holy Terror and how it came about? Sure, Bill. So Holy Terror 2011 was originally going to be Holy Terror Batman by Frank Miller as a Batman story for DC. He was doing the Dark Knight Returns Part 2 series when 9-11 happened. There's a long hiatus, and then he finally finished it, and then went on to a 9-11-oriented Batman story. It was meant to portray the Islamic fundamentalists that were responsible for 9-11 in a way similar to how Captain America punched Hitler in the jaw on the cover of Captain America Comics 1 by uh, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. It ended up being somewhat of a pro-vigilante, pro-violence toward Middle Eastern immigrant type story because in the story it carries this assumption that all Muslims, all Middle Easterners carry some sort of terror weapon with them. And so it came off kind of strong and some have called it somewhat fascist and mean-hearted, very angry. Racist. Potentially even racist. And DC did not feel comfortable putting Batman into that story and publishing it like that. So uh, instead he self-published it change the art so that it didn't look outright like Batman and Catwoman. He did explore some of the imagery of Condoleezza Rice and George Bush Jr. and Dick Cheney, not necessarily for or against, but more in the setting of trying to, I think, give us context of the imagery of the time. It comes from a very different standpoint as the other book we're going to talk about. You know, the the one thing that really continued to flood my mind the entire time I was reading this was you have a black cover with a small, long rectangular piece with basically the bodies of 
every comic strip character you can think of blowing amidst the wind, kind of in a classic comic strip chaos. It basically was showing how up in the air life was made to New Yorkers after uh, 9-11. And you see the stark imagery as you open the book up of the vaporizing skeleton of one of the towers superimposed over a September 11th, 1901 front page of the New York's World newspaper and in glorious black and white. But the imagery that... uh, Art evokes is uh, brilliant color, and the printing is fantastic. But the uh, newspaper is declaring the worsening condition of President McKinley, which is basically telling us that even 100 years before, things were uh, not so great in the U.S. of A., including the first president shot in the 20th century. The intro, which was basically called The Sky is Falling, then it was Art was uh, admitting to being easily unhinged, and had many near-death experiences, he kind of tells you that he was feeling more and more perturbed. And then as the day went on, or as the aftermath of 9-11 went on, his daughter is encouraged to wear red, white, and blue at the opening of her new school after being displaced by her school that was at Ground Zero. And he goes into a rant, of uh, almost a hippie rant, which I found really funny, and he always seems to come back to the humor of the things that happened during the tragedy. But the beautiful thing that happens, I think, as a member of the Comic Historian podcast, is how many classic characters you see in this. And uh, you see them almost realistic, yet cartoon version of Art and his wife, Francois Mouly, looking for their daughter. And then that is juxtaposed against his version of himself and Mouse. And then you suddenly see him holding a brick in a scene with Crazy Cat. So, and these things all build up in the story. But where did this all come from, you may ask? It came from the German newspaper. It's Zeit, which is super large format. And he did this for his friend, Michael Nauman, who had just taken over the book, or the magazine, rather. Then when they reprinted it, they reprinted on very thick stock, which I'm sure you guys, uh, both having young children, know what I'm talking about. It's kind of that thick stock that you get in kids' books. And you saw so many different and strange crossovers. You, you saw the Cats and Jammer kids with the towers coming out of their heads and flaming. And then you saw, instead of Happy Hooligan, you saw Hapless Hooligan dealing with the aftermath. And you saw... All sorts of things. My favorite of the entire book, though, is the Maggie and Jigs portion, where you even have a moment of Arab face as opposed to black face, where Maggie suddenly looks like Osama bin Laden. And that's a play on the fact that she would always come out wearing different creams and things on her face and scare Jigs half to death. In this case, she comes out looking like bin Laden. So it all comes to a head with him basically saying at the end of this, this quote that I thought was very telling and maybe the most poignant out of the entire book, but the Twin Towers have come to loom larger than life, but they seem to get smaller every day. Happy anniversary, 2003, Mark Spiegelman. And then at the end of the book, there's a seven-plate, 14-page comic book supplement 
which actually reprints the comics themselves from 100 years before and a little bit after 100 years or before 100 years. But you have Little Nemo bringing up Father. One of my favorite pages is the Kinder Kids, Yellow Kid, the Upsy Downsies, Foxy Grandpa. And, you know, it was just, it's all one great big mess, just like 9-11 was in a lot of senses. I love the fact that this is the guy, Art Spiegelman, who brought us wacky packages in the 70s. He, of course, gave us Mouse and an awful lot of things pop culture-wise because he's a master of many styles. And nobody else could have tackled this subject quite the way he did. And I'm just completely floored by what he was able to produce after 9-11. So we should talk about for a few minutes about both of these books in terms of the Spiegelman book predictably had a, a very political edge to it, although he's not necessarily known for his political stances, although we all know his politics, I mean, that he would be on the, the left side. But this is, is a very political book in that he takes – George W. Bush to task for politicizing 9-11 and using it to get into another war that had, in his mind, nothing to do with 9-11, the Iraqi war. So he takes this and runs with it as he was already disturbed about the year 2000, about Bush becoming president in the, in the very hard to determine close election. And after that, he at first is a little bit disrupted about things, but quickly kind of goes back to normal in terms of being bothered about the current president and their policies. And it talks about in the very first page, it talks about waiting for that other shoe to drop. And it looks like it's it's got a typical looking shoe. But by the last page, they're all cowboy boots. And he's waiting, and it's it's more about the Republican National Convention that is coming there and his criticism of that. And there's falling cowboy boots with dollar signs on it. And it's it's he refers earlier to the ostrich party and people burying their heads in the sand. And he has George W. Bush with devilish ears pulling down the Statue of Liberty. So it, it becomes... What's interesting to me about it is he's critical of George W. Bush for politicizing 9-11, and this book is a total politicization of 9-11 for his concerns, too. So there's an inconsistency to that. The only other thing I want to say, Bill, is on the cover that I, I think you, you missed an aspect of it, which is those characters that are floating in the air or appear to be falling have all are all being kicked by a Muslim goateed goat up into the air. So it does take into account it's deeper than uh, that. Yeah. 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 You kind of miss that, that. That's a that's a goat. But with a with a um, turban on his head, kicking all of the characters through the sky. You also for the uh, other shoe. It's funny because it starts out with an ad for the Jihad Shoe Company. And then and then it goes, then it spirals into the cowboy boots, which is kind of hilarious. Like we were all OK with Jihad before it happened to us almost and that we're damn sure going to put a boot up the ass of anybody that tries to mess with America after that. Or that's what I got out of it. 
And the other thing is, Spiegelman talks about it brings in the Holocaust directly to this, as of course he would, because one of the things interesting to both of these books is that their greatest work came at the same time, Dark Knight for Miller and Mouse for for this. And so these seem very much like part two, like like projects that relate to that earlier moment of, of greatest success. And in this one, he talks about Mouse and how his father handled the Holocaust as compared to how he was handling this crisis that he was experiencing. And for him, it was a crisis because his daughter, the reason she was at a new school that you mentioned, Bill, later is because she was at school right below the Twin Towers and they had to rush there to to get her that day. And so it was a terrifying experience for he and his wife. And that's true. And, and something that I think we've observed before is in certain ways, you could see some of the panels of him reacting to the episode of, of 9-11, the anxiety of where his daughter is. And then also looking at the Bush administration at the time, and he has a hard time telling if there's a good guy in in the equation. And that's where you can almost feel like there's a hopelessness in the situation at the time. And then just completely flabbergasted and floored by the entire thing that was going on. Whereas in comparison, the way he portrayed his father dealing with the Holocaust, and then also teaching him about how he dealt with it. It was almost a more, almost as if his father was made of sterner stuff, dealing with far more intense and horrible and personal things. But in a certain way, it, it was almost portrayed as if he himself, Art Spiegelman, took 9-11 far more personally and was far more hurt by the whole thing. So, you know, it's hard to say, is it a commentary on how intense it was for him? Is it a commentary on the previous generation being a bit more strong about certain traumas? You know, I'm not really sure. Something I also want to throw in there that you had mentioned, but wanted to kind of emphasize it a bit more, is that although both Frank Miller and Spiegelman did have their successes with Mouse and Dark Knight, Returns in 1986, they almost made slight, what I would say is that was their peak, and this was almost like their, I guess you could say, twin shadows of their former selves. What they have brought to the table with this doesn't seem quite as intense or award-winning or interesting as their work 30 years prior. Another thing I want to throw out there is I personally kind of don't agree with each one's approach to this, because in Frank Miller's, there's almost this unilateral, complete no thinking, doesn't matter who, you know, who the enemy really is. If they all look and talk like this, they're the enemy, and we should take it upon ourselves to cause physical violence on them. And at the same time, I didn't really like Spiegelman's approach, because if I, I find it as a Middle Easterner myself, I find it hard to kind of digest the notion that he is looking at these fundamentalist terrorists have caused this, but then for him to not to not even be able to at least say that America is a better place or that even that the government is at least less malignant, or it, it was almost like he was equating them. And I think I had I had a hard time really digesting 
that approach as well. And this is what I find kind of fascinating is I almost feel like neither approach for me is the right answer. I feel like there's got to be some middle ground here. I, I didn't really like either one. I think that the six-page story that Alan Moore did achieves a far better balance than, I mean, the Moore, the uh, the Miller story doesn't achieve anything except the art's good, but I mean, it's 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 kind of abhorrent. But I would wanted to add that Miller had kind of lost his mind at that point. He was when that came out was the same time that the Occupy Wall Street movement was going on, and whether you thought that was a good idea or not. Miller was saying things like, quote, Occupy is nothing but a pack of louts, thieves and rapists, an unruly mob fed by Woodstock era nostalgia and putrid false righteousness. These clowns can do nothing but harm America, he wrote on his website. This is no popular uprising. This is garbage. And goodness knows they're spewing their garbage, both politically and physically, every which way they can find. He goes on and calls the protesters a bunch of iPhone, iPad-wielding, spoiled brats who should stop getting in the way of working people and find jobs for themselves. So he's become a really out-there grouch, you know, get off my yard and, and or I'm going to shoot you, you know, Gran Torino level at that point. So that's where he's coming from when he's writing this. He has since backed away a little bit and said, yeah, I was kind of, I wouldn't approach it this way now. So we can give Miller a little bit of a break that he's mellowed out, maybe hopefully kind of calmed down a little bit on this. I think with Spiegelman, you got to put it in the context of when this was happening, what was happening in terms of what I don't believe was a just invasion of another country that didn't have anything to do with this. So he was mad at the Bush administration. But what he did by talking about that was kind of equating everything the same in a way that Alan Moore said, you know, I'm not saying they're the same. I'm saying there's things and people on all sides, but that doesn't mean and it's not one or the right. other. I think Spiegelman lost that message a little bit. Of course, the thing about it that none of us are in talking about this is, boy, he was there. Yes. I mean, that yes. day. And he talks about New York and especially lower Manhattan, where it was all happening as being his life experience. Yes. And, you know, he did that cover for The New Yorker. So he he has 9-11 etched in him in a way that we can all talk about. It's different seeing it on TV versus right in front of you. And and again, that actually speaks to Frank Miller and him. They were both there. And that's the thing, right? This whole comics industry, they were all kind of there. But the way these two guys reacted, their manifestos on their reactions, and then comparing it to, let's say, Joe Casada, who was there. And, you know, Howard Chaikin brought this up in the Facebook group that these two guys reacted as if 9-11 was a personal attack on them. They acted like it attacked me, so this is my intense reaction. Whereas, you know, Joe Casada, I keep saying Joe Casada, or Mark Bagley, or whoever, they didn't, they, these guys didn't react like this. So th there's something special about these two guys. They were very passionate about this thing. I also would add that if I was teaching a course on all the works of, of Frank Miller, although I don't like this story at all in, in terms of the, the writing, I think it's a step up from what he was doing on some of the, the later Sin City stuff. I think some of the pages, the use of color, it's bold. I think it's actually 
pretty good. I mean, yeah, he he goes into much more caricature than he did, you know, 20 years earlier. But I I think it's visually worth looking at. I think his storytelling is still strong as compared to maybe what it is now. But that's really all I'd have to say. The both books are worth reading. The other thing, only other thing, Alex, I'd say I was curious about with you is in The Shadow of No Towers, as somebody who started comic book historians, it seems to me that it shows great respect for history of of comic strips. That notion that 9-11 knocked down and freed up all of the comic characters because of their history in New York as something that came from the Hearst and Pulitzer battles and, and such there. And I like that a lot. I like the idea of them running free, the the Cats and Jammer kids running with the burning towers, as as Bill mentioned, was really powerful imagery. It, it does actually bring together the idea that comic book and comic strip, it's all very New Yorkish, very New York based. And the Spiegelman book illustrates that better than any book. I agree. And that's, that's why I, I put that maybe higher. I hold that one a little bit higher in regard. Those last pages of, of comic strip reprints, which are all very carefully selected to reflect buildings falling down or lower Manhattan in, in terms of the Little Nemo one or the world being upside down. And there's one with uh, Muslims. You know, they, those are not just randomly selected. Each of them has meaning that relates to Spiegelman's own broadsheets in the in the first half of the book it's a smartly conceived book that has flaws that's right i say something about spiegelman whether i agree or not his knowledge of strip history and appreciation for it is very deep he's a strip historian himself and an animation historian so he takes it to this historical level that you don't really see from the miller book but i would say miller is a superior comic book choreographer i would have to throw that out there well, one is about comic strips and one is a superhero book where they took off the ears of Batman so that he wouldn't get sued. Right. That's right. Okay, now for our third section, Jim wanted to talk about the movies. We have no idea where he's going with this, but take it away, Jimbo. Okay. So what I was saying was at the time that 9-11 happened, we were still in an action film cycle. There had been X-Men, a little Blade, some toying with the ideas of comic book influences and superheroes. But we were still in the Bruce Willis, Arnold Schwarzenegger phase of popular films. And that went away almost immediately with 9-11. There's even, Spiegelman mentions in his book that there were there were billboards of collateral damage, the Schwarzenegger film that got pulled from release that was set to come out in October that dealt with terrorism. And what happened was, in my view is that what happened was that these films were too close to home. So it's ironic that while right after 9-11, All the comics were honoring the first responders and the real heroes and regular people. The result of 9-11 was that all of those people in terms of film disappeared. And instead, we needed more of a filter rather than going directly to the terrorists. We needed supervillains. We needed superheroes because that was more palatable. We didn't want to have 
the real life action heroes in her face because it was too disturbing, too close to home after 9-11. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker, as Willis said, wasn't comfortable to us anymore. We needed them to be wearing masks and to be mutants and to be Spider-Man and, and that kind of thing. And you see it almost immediately with like Spider-Man 2, where it's a very patriotic picture of new yorkers bonding together to help spider-man when he's getting beaten up by dr octopus and you actually have the flag in the background and it just becomes obvious and the numbers that that film achieved in the box office success really led to what became the marvel era of movies once iron man started so i think that all of that is directly responsible for that shift to the superhero films and away from the real terrorists taking over real buildings and, and things like that that we just didn't have the stomach for. And then we got hooked on the, the superheroes. But then what happened was that the superhero films started to address the issues of this, but again, through that filter. And the one that I want to talk about briefly is Dark Knight because that's just such a fascinating film in terms of that, because the way it starts out for the first two thirds of that film is exactly like classic American narrative. What you have is the societal hero, which is Harvey Dent. And then you have the outlaw hero, which is Bruce Wayne, Batman and the girl in the middle. And you have all the other indicators that that classic narrative films always had with that struggle. And in that struggle, the girl always ends up sacrificing and going with the societal hero and the outlaw hero has to walk alone and he's sacrificed the girl and he's done what needed to take place. And this is most commonly exemplified by Casablanca, but you also see it in everything from Huckleberry Finn with Tom Sawyer as the more acceptable guy and, and, and Huck Finn with his black friend, which again, you, you see that mirrored with Sam and Casablanca. And then you, and then, so you get to dark Knight, and you have that same story structure and you'd actually, you could point scene after scene in that film versus Casablanca. And they're almost mirrors of each other very self-consciously. But then what happens is the Joker isn't like the traditional villains. He's not even like the Nazi right. in Casablanca. He's a terrorist, and he blows it up. And what he blows up is not random. It's two towers in Gotham, and they both go off at the same time. And right after that, the police station, i.e. the Pentagon, is also blown up by him by a suicide bomber, although he doesn't know he's a suicide. All that imagery is very much about 9-11. And once that happens two-thirds into the film, then the film becomes a very political treatise on our reaction to that. And the debate is on first strike with the which boat blows up the other one, pressing the button with torture, with obviously with surveillance, with extradition. Everything that was going on talking in, about the Bush administration is dealt with systematically in that film, point by point by point. On both sides, politically, it's not real clear whether it's who it's 
pro or against, but it's dealing with that in a very sophisticated way. And that's why that film, I think, stands out amongst all the others. But they're all addressing it to some degree. And I, I just wanted to comment on that, that I, this is all a child of 9-11. Every moment in, in terms of film after that has to do with, with that 9-11 moment. That's why I wanted to include that in this presentation. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's wonderful. I remember watching Dark Knight for the first time, and there was a sense of dread. I was deeply disturbed. I mean, I read, you know, the first appearance of the Joker back, what, in 1940, I think, by Jerry Robinson and Bill Finger and Bob Kane. And you look so young. I'm, I'm surprised you were around back then. When it first came out, I remember it on the newsstands. <laughs> No, but I did read a reprint, and it was disturbing. He was a terrorist, and he made it, He would proclaim what he was about to do, and no one could figure out a way to stop him, and there was chaos and destruction. So they had that element of that in that movie, but there was something that hit a chord with me personally when I watched it. I, I remember going to bed. I'm almost staring at the ceiling thinking, what did I just watch, and why did it make me feel this way? And I think Jim's right. I think it brought back that sense of dread of watching the Twin Towers go down, it felt that way. Also about Iron Man, considering that would be essentially the the first Marvel Studios movie, he takes on Middle Eastern terrorists in that movie. As opposed to Vietnam. Yeah, because of the timing of the Iraq War. But it was interesting. It does almost feel like that played a part in their first Marvel Studios movie. And essentially going from Middle Eastern terrorists and then evolving toward more superpowered and then more cosmic, much more escapist villains to move from Middle Eastern terrorists to Thanos. I mean, that's quite a journey, but with each one getting more and more fantastic, we're escaping more and more in a way. But it seemed like Dark Knight really confronted it. I guess the final thing about that is in Dark Knight, the way Batman wanted to deal with the chaos of going against individual rights and liberties by basically spying on every cell phone and using that as a sonar device to try to really tack down where the Joker was. And Morgan Freeman, who's Bill's idol now... He always has been. ...saying to Batman, you know, this is wrong. You are going beyond what the original deal was and infringing on people's privacy to really tack down the Joker, we are kind of losing ourselves in this fight. And a lot of that reeks of Patriot Act, the Patriot Act, and and that's still going strong to this very day. And it just got stronger and stronger ever since it first started. All of that just kind of reeks of a reaction to 9-11. So, Jim, when you brought that up, yeah, that resonates correct with me. I feel like you got that spot on. Yeah, I think it was underestimated at the time, especially by a lot of film scholars. But that's how I was reading it and how I've taught it for for years, that it's it's that. And I, I think that was why I like Black Panther so much this year, because it was another one where you could really dissect it and apply a lot of relevancy to it. I think that film has not 9-11 in it, but it has a lot of application to current political issues. 
Well, it does, because there's a whole nationalism versus globalism debate in that yeah, whole movie. Yeah, that's exactly right. It, it really does. And I think the ones that do that, that have that extra layer, are the most interesting superhero films, if if not the, the best. Because if superhero isn't a metaphor for something, it's not that interesting to me. It's when it, it when there's a second level of reading to it. And, and that's what 9-11 really opened up and why I think one of the reasons why the films have been so successful on the marvel side at least what do you think about man of steel Mm -hmm. because i i feel like it hit quite a few tones of 9-11 also especially with the destruction to metropolis i actually think it was superman returns that is the more accurate 9-11 film because he was gone during 9-11 right Right. and he comes back and he starts surveilling I've never seen him as a stalker, but he's floating outside Lois's place, eavesdropping on her and Morgan Edge or Pete Ross or whoever she's married to, Perry White's nephew, uh, whatever the nonsense was. Cyclops. That was Cyclops, wasn't it? Yeah, but it wasn't he related <laughs> to Perry White? It, it doesn't matter because it was awful, whatever it was. But he was spying on her. And then he goes up in the earth in orbit almost and is listening to everybody while looking all jesusy looking in a in a kind of brian singer fantasy photo spread kind of a way (laughs) it had a lot of that you know the the line where it's like truth justice all that jazz like it was taking i don't care whether the american way is in it or not in the saying but when Perry White did it that way, like saying, does that stuff still count? It was that was all about 9-11 and, and our role in global politics. And I so I think that's the one that was political. I think Man of Steel was just a bunch of people fighting each other because the Chinese market likes that. I'm going to throw this out about Man of Steel. I'm one of the few people that kind of liked it. But one thing I did like about Man of Steel is is an interesting thing f- from an immigrant perspective of how much do you embrace the new culture of where you're at versus how much of the old culture do you forget or hold on to. And from that perspective, I really liked Man of Steel because Zod came from the old world and felt that the old world should replace the new world. And Superman was the opposite. He felt that it's the new world now and it's time we assimilate. Because that's where we are, and we had our chance, the old world failed. And me as an immigrant who kind of goes more toward the Superman perspective on that, I found that fascinating. And I know that that's a big deal in a lot of immigrant stories, is how much of the old versus the new. And that's actually part of the immigration issue going on now, is when we have immigration, how much of the old culture should they keep? How much of the new culture are they expected to embrace? I thought Man of Steel approached that well. I also like seeing Metropolis getting smashed to hell, too. I had to go and cry in the bathroom over it. I hated that film so passionately. (laughs) If you are a super lover. But, Bill, you love super dudes, too, right? No, no, I'm I'm a super chick guy. Wait, wait, that doesn't even sound right these days. What am I saying? So, you know, i got to be honest with you guys. This has been a really hard episode to do because we had... Well, we had to be a bit more somber, sober even, than usual. So I don't know about you guys, but I'm ready to rant and or rave for the full hundred seconds. How about you guys? Yeah, Bill, do it. Go. Okay. Now, I'm going to kind of rave and rant at the same time. I really enjoyed this season of S.H.I.E.L.D. It was a great season. And the reason I bring it up during this 9-11 episode is there are a lot of things going on in Chicago 
that seem to mimic what happened in 9-11, especially with... In the season finale you're talking about. Right. I don't want to give anything away if people have DVR'd it and not seen it yet, but I will say I was disappointed there wasn't a Thanos crossover. Nobody disappeared at the end. I have to say I really loved the season, and I loved the things that they brought into it. You saw Scroll for the first time on uh, TV or movies. You saw The Cree. It was a great ending. They're only going to have a 13-episode season next year, which is roughly half. Kind of sad, but it's nice that they've stuck with S.H.I.E.L.D., even though it hasn't had the greatest numbers. The cast and the uh, people that they get in as guest stars are just always fantastic. And I still love the show. Just a little disappointed with not as many crossover moments as I would have liked. And now, Jim, would you like to go next? I will go next. What I wanted to, and I'll be very brief, in reading these stories, the 9-11 stories, I thought a lot about how it's within the context of the times. When we're repackaging storylines, whether it's 9-11 storylines or anything that seems topical, I think it's a real mistake to apply current standards or to adjust it somehow in the re-editing or, or in the reproduction of the, the books. So if, for example, there was uh, there was a Captain America story that the Tea Party didn't like and objected, and Casada said, when we reprint this, we will take out the line about them being racist or whatever. And I understand the objection, but I think it's it's a mistake to take things out of context and alter them or, or change them I like to have it be what was published at that time as a historian and as an archaeological study of something. It gets twisted and distorted. If they had changed these 9-11 stories to reflect a, a, a change because of the W and the Bush administration years later, then we wouldn't be getting able to do what we've done tonight talking about that historical moment. So that's my rave rant. Well, and that brings us to... The amazingly grand Alex Grand. You know, as a Middle Eastern immigrant who actually wasn't born here, I was born far away in a land long forgotten in the Middle East. And I came here when I was one. And so my immediate reaction was loving all the pop culture and completely embracing it. And with the encouragement of my parents, I essentially turned my back on the old country and the old ways because I feel like it had its chance. And if they want to work it out, they can work it out over there. And I will be a new person in uh, this new land. I think 9-11 and the reaction I read from these comics and stories, they're good because they come from either American citizen perspective or Alan Moore, who's British. Very few of them, I don't even know if any, really come from a perspective that's American and Middle Eastern. And I feel like a lot of it fails to capture the feelings that a Middle Eastern American has when they look at something like 9-11 happen. They will have kind of a little politically correct panel of a white girl and a Middle Eastern girl holding hands being sad about the whole thing, and that's all fine. None of it really portrays the conflict, and the main conflict is a deep resentment against the terrorist who did it, because now they're following me here in a very general Zod-like fashion. 
now they're coming after us and now they're trying to ruin the new place when they already kind of ruined the old place and this feeling of a very ferocious defensiveness of the american identity and the american boundary which i've adopted so much and i feel like a lot of these things i read here are good but i feel like none of them really express that with the angle of liking the old culture for what it was but that it needs to just kind of learn from its old mistakes and stop attacking us. Man of Steel came the closest, but I feel like there's more story that can be told about it that hasn't been told yet. Wow. Well, there you have it, folks. We got through the most somber, sober episode yet. So, folks, I wanted to give you a little preview of our next podcast. This week, we did the year after 9-11. Next time, we're reaching back further and doing the year after Pearl Harbor. I'm already practicing Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy of Company C, but until then, if you like us, go to iTunes and give us a review and some stars. That's five stars, baby. Five stars. And then that's how people can find out about us. We will see you next time in 1941-ish, 42-ish, right here at the Comic Book Historians Podcast. Aloha.